It's the race to the finish line. This is Viewpoint from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Welcome to Viewpoint. I'm your host, Ashton Mara. Nearly 150,000 West Virginians have already cast their general election ballots during the early voting period across the state. But with a few days left before Election Day, candidates are still working to get your vote. We meet two gubernatorial candidates and take a look at the race for agriculture commissioner and how the opioid epidemic is impacting the election in West Virginia, coming up on Viewpoint. As of Thursday morning, West Virginia's Secretary of State's office was reporting more than 140,000 West Virginians had cast early ballots. Those totals put the state on track to break previous early voting records. But Secretary of State Natalie Tennant says that doesn't necessarily mean overall voter turnout will be high in the state. The early voting turnout of already 140-some thousand, you you would think that you're going to have a, a great overall turnout, but sometimes it doesn't translate. The early voting doesn't translate into overall turnout. But with that being said, I think that we're having so much enthusiasm and so much attention to this election that it, that it will continue. We had 40% voter turnout in the primary election, which on its surface is not great, but was so much better than previous elections that that's why I'm anticipating you know, over 40 percent voter turnout. The reasons why a high number of voters are turning out during the early voting period can vary. Presidential races tend to peak voter interests, bringing more out to the polls. With a particularly ugly election season, it's also possible that many voters are just ready to put the races behind them. At the presidential level, polling not just in West Virginia but throughout the Ohio Valley region shows billionaire Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump enjoys strong support from the region's white working class, an often overlooked group of voters. This angry election season has caused many writers to focus on the deep discontent among white workers. The Ohio Valley Resources' Jeff Young spoke with three authors about why the white working class has such a dark outlook on the country's future. One look at the titles in my local bookstore and I knew something was up. White Trash, White Rage, Hillbilly Elegy. Writers are taking a new, some would say overdue, look at the white working class. Robert P. Jones of the Public Religion Research Institute uses demographics to explain what he calls the end of white Christian America. If we go back just two election cycles ago to 2008, when Barack Obama was first running for president, uh, the country was a solidly majority white Christian country. 54% of the country identified as white and Christian in 2008. That number today from our latest surveys is 43%. And with that really passing from the scene, that that sense of anxiety and dislocation uh, was actually underneath uh, what was fueling so many of our of our debates. So do you see what you're describing there playing out in the Trump campaign and Trumpism? Well, Donald Trump has essentially converted uh, these values voters into, uh, I've argued, into nostalgia 
voters. His slogan, this kind of make America great again, um, that last word again uh, really does harken back, I think, to a time when white Christian churches and people had much more power in the culture than they have today. In Hillbilly Elegy, J.D. Vance draws on personal experience in small-town Ohio and Kentucky. It's a searing account of a childhood amid the chaos of addiction and abuse, challenges Vance says outside observers don't fully appreciate. And if I wanted to show people what those problems really looked like, there wasn't a better way than for me to open up my own life and my own family and say, look, this is what it looks like when you're really struggling to get ahead We spoke via Skype. Vance told me he thinks a lot of rural Americans are voting out of a sense of despair. Folks are really struggling with heroin. Um, Families are breaking down, increasing mortality rates and so forth. They don't believe anymore in the promise of the American dream. They don't believe that hard work can connect them to better opportunities because they just don't believe that no matter what they do, that they're going to have a better life. That feeling isn't made up. It doesn't come from nowhere. And so I do think that there's an important element of despair. But historian Nancy Eisenberg cautions that Vance's personal story can put too much emphasis on individual choice over structural problems. Blaming it on family dysfunction, blaming it on drug addiction, misses that these are rooted in economic dislocation. Eisenberg's book, White Trash, shows poor Americans have repeatedly been ridiculed and blamed for their own misfortune. We really begin to see this focus on how they are a group of people who have so many defects that somehow they can never be assimilated into normal society. And this is a really important argument. This is how Americans can ignore a class. If you claim that no education, no charity is actually going to help uplift these people because of their derelict ways, essentially then you can write them off. And Eisenberg sees quite a bit of that attitude on display today in media depictions of rural Southern and Appalachian voters. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Jeff Young in Louisville. West Virginia, Kentucky, and Ohio, the region is ground zero for the opioid epidemic, with some of the nation's highest addiction and overdose rates. Now, the substance abuse issue is finding its way into political campaigns, from the presidential race down to the local level. The Ohio Valley Resources' Aaron Payne reports on how the results of two key races could shape how West Virginia addresses the crisis. Matt Boggs has a firsthand view of the opioid epidemic in the Mountain State as executive director of Recovery Point West Virginia. A treatment center has more resources available today than in years past, but Boggs says those seeking help still face month-long waiting lists. That includes our Huntington location for men, our Bluefield location for men, and then our waiting list for the Charleston Women's Facility. We're experiencing a, a rather large waiting list for that. This election season, Boggs is advocating for additional help from politicians. Because until we can continue to pump resources into it, we're not going to get anywhere. And the two major party candidates in the race for governor are paying attention. Democrat Jim Justice and Republican Bill Cole have released plans to address the epidemic. We welcome you to the first West Virginia gubernatorial debate. of the During their first debate organized by the AARP, Justice touched on the third point in his three-point plan, which promotes job creation. You have a real problem. Our workforce is a real problem, but with drugs, we've got to fix this. Justice's plan relies heavily on law enforcement, but also includes ending overprescribing of opioids, expanding drug courts, and adding treatment programs to regional jails. 
Cole went into the nuance of his seven-point action plan. He vows to aggressively go after drug dealers, but also direct funds to programs that give jobs to people in recovery. That's what we always miss. We get them out of treatment and then can't get them back to work because of a felony conviction. Cole's plan also includes mandatory minimum sentences for drug traffickers, creating the Office of Drug Action and training laid-off workers for rehabilitation jobs. At the national level, both major party presidential candidates have released plans to combat the opioid epidemic throughout the country. The origins of Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton's plan can be found in a forum broadcast last July by WMUR-TV in New Hampshire. And welcome back to our conversation with the Clinton candidates. said her plan would lead with a nationwide discussion about addiction. I want us to have a very broad-based education information campaign because some young people don't truly understand the risks. The next step would call for a major expansion of treatment resources. When a young person says that he or she is ready, they want help, very often they cannot find help. Clinton's initiative proposes $10 billion to create additional resources and fund new programs. Other highlights include criminal justice reforms as well as additional training for opioid prescribers. Republican nominee Donald Trump's plan lacked details for most of the campaign. Building a wall to stop the flow of drugs from the southern border was previously the only specific. But Trump later fleshed out his plan during an October rally in New Hampshire carried by C-SPAN. The border wall is still central to Trump's plan, but it now includes more specifics regarding treatment for those suffering from addiction. We'll make sure that they have the top treatment and get better. He would seek to eliminate restrictions to treatment and its costs. I would dramatically expand access to treatment slots and end Medicaid policies that obstruct inpatient treatment. Matt Boggs hopes each candidate sticks to their plans if elected. And if they need a reminder of what's at stake in West Virginia, he invites them to visit Recovery Point. You will leave with a changed view on what recovery looks like when you see the smiling faces of 100 men who were once hopeless and now they have hope. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Aaron Payne in Parkersburg. Reporting from the Ohio Valley Resources made possible with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and West Virginia Public Broadcasting. This is Viewpoint from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. We turn now to the statewide races, where the race for governor is at the forefront of voters' minds. There are five candidates in the race, some of whom you've already met on this podcast. Representing the third parties are Charlotte Pritt of the Mountain Party, Libertarian David Moran, and Constitution Party candidate Phil Hudock. Leading the race, though, are Republican Bill Cole and Democrat Jim Justice. In his gubernatorial campaign, Senate President Bill Cole has emphasized shrinking the size of state government and cutting down on regulation in West Virginia. Cole has drawn support from like-minded national Republican figures like Wisconsin's controversial Governor Scott Walker. As Jesse Wright reports, it's that kind of support that has generated some of Cole's strongest opposition among voters in the Mountain State. We're here to protest the fact that Bill Cole is bringing a guy named Scott Walker to town. That's Josh Sword, Secretary-Treasurer of the West Virginia AFL-CIO Union. 
Scott Walker is the governor of Wisconsin whose claim to fame is lowering wages, taking away benefits, and make, making workplaces less safe in Wisconsin. Sword was among a group of protesters who greeted Cole and Walker as they made their way to a campaign rally in Charleston last week. Walker joined Cole on a tour of West Virginia, making stops in Bluefield, Charleston, and Morgantown. Cole voiced his admiration for what Walker has done in Wisconsin during their joint campaign stop in Morgantown. He says Walker came into office with more than 9% unemployment and a $3.6 billion deficit. And in the six years he's been in office, unemployment is down to 4.1, I think he said, and they had a $300 million surplus, budget surplus this year. Walker ran into a lot of union opposition when he passed some of the same legislation in Wisconsin that Cole shepherded through West Virginia's legislature this past session. One of those bills made West Virginia the 26th right-to-work state. The law makes it illegal to fire a worker for refusing to join a union or pay union dues or fees. But it's being challenged in a state court, with unions leading the charge against it. Right-to-work is not an anti-union vote. Now, the union bosses are going to say that it is because the union bosses are all of a sudden going to have to get up and deliver for their membership. Cole says unions will now have to prove that those dues will help workers. Opponents of the law say those fees help unions negotiate fair wages for all workers. The backlash against right to work and other GOP-backed legislation Cole advanced during this past session has spurred opposition candidates to run in West Virginia, even Republicans. West Virginia's race for governor has also attracted money from national political action committees that want to make sure those laws stay in place. Back at the protest in Charleston, Ginny Moles with the Alliance for Retired Americans says she doesn't agree with Cole's leadership during his time in the legislature. You don't cut people's wages. You don't pass right to work when only 8% of the workforce is union and tell us that that's anything but union busting. If you want to build the state, you don't do those two things. You create jobs. Job creation is featured prominently in Cole's campaign. He often cites wanting to change West Virginia's low workforce participation rate as one of his primary goals. So has his Democratic gubernatorial opponent, billionaire Jim Justice. Another thing they both agree on is who they'd like to see as the next U.S. president. We in this room all better pray it's a Donald Trump White House. That's Cole speaking to a group of energy industry executives at a meeting in Wheeling last week. He told the group that Hillary Clinton is bent on regulating the coal and gas industries to death, and that's something West Virginia can't afford. At that meeting, Cole also referenced leaked footage of Trump making vulgar remarks about sexually assaulting women, defending his party's candidate. I'm sure we've all said and done things that we'd love to take back or, or take off the table or wouldn't be so proud of in, in, a, in a different setting than when they were said. Justice campaign ads have taken shots at Cole over several lawsuits stemming from his auto dealership in Ashland, Kentucky. They include allegations of sexual harassment, not at the hands of Cole himself, but other employees. Cole describes them as nuisance lawsuits that most businesses deal with on a regular basis. They've all been discharged. Not a one of them went, to, went anywhere. Cole making a living as an auto dealer has generated criticism of another kind, though. Under his watch as Senate president, West Virginia lawmakers passed Senate Bill 453 in 2015. The bill banned direct sales of Tesla electric vehicles, which critics say cuts competition for Cole's dealerships. The law also set a minimum reimbursement rate for warranty work done on cars. Democrats say this is especially hypocritical considering Cole pushed through repeal of West Virginia's prevailing wage this year. Prevailing wage laws set the minimum amount contractors can be paid on state construction jobs. 
Cole says repealing the prevailing wage and other legislation he has championed as Senate president will move the state forward. Back at the rally at a bar on High Street in Morgantown, Cole also referenced the fact that Justice says he'll continue to coach high school basketball if he's governor, potentially splitting his attention during the legislative session. So if we have full-time problems, they require full-time solutions, and I'm going to tell you, we need a full-time governor. That governor's Bill Cole. The latest Metro News West Virginia poll shows Justice leading Cole by 11 points. That's down slightly from the previous month's 14 points. The margin of error still puts Justice's lead in double digits. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jesse Wright in Morgantown. Democrat Jim Justice announced his run for governor more than a year and a half ago and since has held a substantial lead in the polls. The owner of coal mines in several states and the famous Greenbrier Resort has invested more than a million dollars of his own money in his race. But Justice has faced many challenges along the way, including criticism over his vague policy ideas and investigations into his business practices. When it comes to traditional Democratic politicians, Jim Justice is likely not the first person who comes to mind for many. The billionaire businessman and coal operator changed his Republican Party affiliation shortly before announcing he'd run for governor in May of 2015. I am much more suited to be a Democrat because I truly want to be the person that is trying to take up for the little guy. That was justice after the announcement in White Sulphur Springs. Eighteen months later, after defeating a former Senate president and a U.S. attorney in the primary, there is little doubt that the Democratic frontrunner has the full backing of his party in the state, even though his platform parallels that of his Republican rival. U.S. Senator Joe Manchin, West Virginia's only Democratic member of Congress, endorsed justice in March. But Manchin's team of political insiders has been working with the Democratic gubernatorial candidate since long before the endorsement. Larry Puccio, Manchin's former chief of staff, works as a consultant on the campaign. He's been able to do great things. He thinks big. He thinks on a different level. Puccio shared that message on the Metro News program talk line last month, a message that Justice himself has traveled the state touting. But the candidate has been criticized for speaking too broadly about his plans for West Virginia's future, not giving the voters enough specific ideas about how he'll create jobs, diversify the state's economy, and deal with shrinking tax revenues, three of the biggest issues in the race. Justice's usual answer? We're dying on the vine. We've proven how to die. We've got to think big and we've got to move forward. During the second of two televised debates, Justice did share some economic plans, like like calling on Congress to credit the state for its large acreage of forested land or attracting the next Dollywood to West Virginia. Professor of political science at West Virginia Wesleyan College, Dr. Robert Rupp, says those big ideas and the way justice conveys them, that's part of who he is as a candidate, a down-home folksy guy. That ensures that the vo- he can connect with the voters, but the difficulty is, can he convince the voters that, that he'll be a good governor? Rupp, a former Republican member of the State Election Commission, says throughout the campaign, Justice has had to work harder to convey an image of leadership than his Republican opponent, Senate President Bill Cole. But all of the polls, even those paid for by the state GOP, show Justice is up in the race by as many as double digits in some cases. And that lead has left him open to attacks. 
The Republican Governors Association has spent nearly a million dollars on the race, largely on television ads that attempt to link justice to Hillary Clinton, the Democratic candidate for president who's widely unpopular in the state. Some center on donations he and his family made in 2011 to the Democratic National Committee. Justice became a Democrat under Obama, gave tens of thousands to national Democrats. Now he's running on the Clinton justice ticket. The Justice family donated more than $120,000 to the DNC during the 2012 election cycle. But Jim Justice has said those dollars were in support of Steve Bashir, Kentucky's former Democratic governor. Justice released his own campaign ads separating himself from Clinton and had this to say during a gubernatorial debate. It's preposterous for a coal man to be a supporter, a supporter of Hillary Clinton. I mean, I don't know why we continue with those lies, and they're just absolute lies. But it's Justice's reputation of being a coal man that news outlets have scrutinized during the race. An NPR investigation in October found Justice companies owed $15 million in unpaid local, state, and federal taxes, as well as delinquent mine safety fines. In West Virginia, Justice owed $3 million in unpaid severance taxes on coal, an area of decline in tax revenues that's caused significant financial hardship for the state. Justice responded to the report during an October 11th debate, saying yes, he owes the taxes and fines, but he is working through a difficult time in the coal industry, and unlike many other companies, hasn't filed for bankruptcy. Justice says that would be giving up. If we would have given up, what would have happened? Those good people, men and women that were working, they'd have gone home. They wouldn't have had their jobs. And I won't feel bad for a second for trying to keep those people in their jobs. So if his business record, his party's national politics, and his broad policy ideas haven't knocked justice out of the front-runner position, less than a week away from Election Day, some say maybe nothing can. There is one other factor in the race, though, Mountain Party candidate Charlotte Pritt. Pritt was the Democratic Party's candidate for governor in 1996 and today is collecting the party's protest votes. Left-leaning West Virginia Democrats who are less than satisfied with conservative justices campaign. Pritt has polled as high as 8 percent in the race, but is her Democratic support enough to hurt justice? West Virginians will find out on November 8th. From the next leader of the state of West Virginia to the next leader of the state's agriculture industry. This year's race for agriculture commissioner is a rematch of 2012, when Republican Kent Leonhardt took on Democrat Walt Helmick. Clark Davis reports the two major party candidates still see the commissioner of agriculture as someone who can diversify the state's economy, but have differing opinions about what that diversification looks like. Wald Helmick is seeking his second term as agriculture commissioner. His competition is Republican Kent Leonhardt and Libertarian Buddy Guthrie. Helmick has held public office since 1988 when he was first elected to the House of Delegates. In 1990, he was elected to the state Senate, serving in a variety of leadership roles, including as finance committee chair. He held a position until he became agriculture commissioner in 2012. Helmick says during his time in the office, he's focused on diversifying the state's economy through agriculture, and he wants to make sure the programs he started continue. This is the first time that we've seen movement in agriculture in West Virginia in almost 100 years now. And uh, we have a structure in place that's going to move this state uh, forward. We're going to be a part of diversification of our economy. Helmick has worked to improve or create farm-to-table and farm-to-school efforts across West Virginia. Local programs that coordinate with small farmers to get local food into schools, businesses, and in the average West Virginian's kitchen. 
Noah Perry is a recently retired cattle farmer from Putnam County. He says it's the new agriculture initiatives Helmick has taken on that have him backing the Democrat. I think the really the farm to table and the farm to school uh, opportunities shows uh, both farmers and consumers what can be done in terms of local production going directly to uh, schools and uh, hospitals. And there's a market opportunity there. Helmick also began a potato pilot project that's headed into its third year. The Department of Agriculture is working with and supplementing 37 potato growers on the western side of the state. Helmick hopes to have a million pounds grown in the next year. As part of the potato growing program, the department is in the process of developing aggregation centers to help clean and process the potatoes for selling. So far, they've opened one in Huntington in an old National Guard armory building. But Helmick says they could have as many as two more up and running in the next year in Beckley and in Bell in Kanawha County. Eventually, the sites will be used to do more than just process potatoes, but will clean and package other crops as well. Helmick says each aggregation point costs the state about a half a million dollars to start. The Department of Agriculture's budget has been cut by more than $3 million in the past few years, but Helmick says these centers are still a good investment. The Department of Agriculture pays for them with money generated from the severance taxes earned on department-owned land. We put that money... uh, that would generate off of timber sales, the selling of natural gas, we put it into our aggregation points. But Republican candidate Kent Leonhart says the potato growing program just can't work in West Virginia. Leonhart lost to Helmick in 2012 and ran a successful race in 2014 for state senate. That's where the Monongalia County farmer and retired Marine currently serves as the chair of the Senate Military Committee and the vice chair of the Committee on Agriculture and Rural Development. Leonhardt also believes the state's next agriculture commissioner should be looking to diversify the economy through farming, but says growing products like potatoes, products that other states are already successfully growing and selling in bulk nationwide, isn't the right direction for West Virginia. What we need to do is is capitalize on niche marketing. I visited a small farm that is exporting duck eggs from West Virginia. They found a niche market, and those are the type of businesses that we need to encourage. That stance in competing through specialty crops and Leonhardt's push for smaller government is why the West Virginia Farm Bureau has endorsed the candidate. Dwayne O'Dell is the group's director of government affairs. He's uh, really wanted to concentrate on things that we could could be competitive in, uh, such as value-added products, uh, organic programs, uh, all-natural production systems, and specialty items like, uh, you know, basil and, and some of those kinds of crops that can be we can be competitive at here in West Virginia. Aside from just potatoes, Helmick is also working to encourage growth in the state's beef industry. But a recent department purchase of cattle caused some controversy. The Department of Agriculture bought four Angus beef cows from an out-of-state auction, which Helmick says will be used to breed new cattle in West Virginia. But Leonhart calls the purchase a misuse of government funds and went as far as calling on a legislative committee to investigate the purchase and perform a full audit of the department. The people out there are telling me we want some accountability in government. Leonhardt's call for an audit was also supported and publicized by the West Virginia Farm Bureau. Helmick says the cattle controversy is just election season politics. We welcome any type of inquiry or any look into whatever we do in our department. I've been very clear about it over the years. uh, We've been cut... $3.2 $3.2 million, and, and then stripped of special revenue accounts. But we have to be innovative, and elections happen.
On Election Day, Helmick says he hopes voters will look at each candidate individually, regardless of the party they come from. Lay the ballot down the night before you go to vote and evaluate those candidates and see if they uh, truly are the people that uh, we want to run this state, whether it be Democrat or Republican. The state always comes before the political parties. Leonhardt says in his mind it's simple why he should be the next commissioner. If you eat from a safe, affordable, abundant food supply, you should care about who your commissioner of agriculture is. If you care about economic activity in West Virginia, you should care about who your commissioner of agriculture. And if you care about finding that balance we just talked about between environmental protection and economic activity, you need to care about who your commissioner of agriculture. Helmick says West Virginians purchase more than $7 billion worth of food each year, but only produce about $1 billion worth of those products. The next commissioner, he says, should be looking to increase that number, and both candidates are confident they can. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Clark Davis in Huntington. As a reminder to our listeners, early voting ends Saturday, November 5th. Election Day is Tuesday, November 8th. This has been Viewpoint from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Special thanks this week to Jeff Young, Aaron Payne, and Ohio Valley Resource. Look for more of their reporting at ohiovalleyresource.org. Our final episode will be out next week, a recap of the 2016 general election results. Viewpoint is available on wvpublic.org, or you can subscribe on iTunes. Follow the show at ViewpointWV on Twitter. I'm Ashton Mara. Thanks for joining us.